Good morning. It's good to see you all and be with you. Um, as Brendan said, this is our last message in the Risk is Right series. Why don't we go ahead and turn our Bibles please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I just want to thank you first and foremost for the way you have given yourself to this series. Uh, we had a wonderful time at Gospel Community just this week, just going over Brendan's message on generosity. And it's clear that the Lord has really been at work meeting us as a local church through this risk series. We started then five weeks ago just looking at the whole premise of risk being right, risk for the cause of Christ and being important and being one of the important themes that runs all the way through Scripture. And then we looked at how that works in relationships and rest and generosity. And this morning we're going to be looking at how risk works towards the lost. So I've called this message Risk and the Lost. And we're going to be reading together from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through to the end of verse 31. And this is the word of the Lord. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom... It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, the stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. But consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him... You are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to your word again today, Lord, I pray you would once again still our souls and guard our minds from all other distractions just to hear from you. Lord, this is a moment in our week where we are addressed by you from your word. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would do what only you can do. Would you open up our hearts? Would we find in our hearts fresh cultivated soil to be able to take this word? Would it change and affect our lives? Lord, open our eyes beyond just our small world. Would you do these things, Lord? In Jesus' name, amen. Let me ask you this. What do you do when you find yourself stuck down a mine some 245 feet below ground and discover 
you are completely trapped. Well, that's the reality that was met by Randy Fogel on July the 24th, 2002, and this is his story. On July the 24th, 2002, Randy Fogel went to work at Quee Creek Mine in Somerset County, Pennsylvania, expecting an ordinary day at the office just like everyone else. Never mind that his office is a dank subterranean labyrinth 245 feet below ground where the only light comes from flickering helmet lamps and a mistake can cost you your life. Randy had been a coal miner for 20 years and he took such challenges in his stride. He had a reputation for toughness. But little did Randy know his toughness was about to be tested to the limit. His ordinary day's work was interrupted at about 9 o'clock in the evening by a frantic voice crackling over his radio. We hit water. We hit water. Get out. Randy's fellow miners had accidentally drilled through an adjacent flooded mine. The miners scrambled to escape, doubled over as they ran to avoid the low ceilings as millions of gallons of water came swirling and gushing about their ankles. One team escaped, but Randy's team did not. Cut off from their only exits by flooded corridors, the nine men found themselves trapped in a chamber only four feet deep and 18 feet wide, filled nearly to the top with freezing water. These men had no shortage of strength and courage. They were fighters and survivors, hard men who faced danger on a daily basis. Randy had played football at high school. His brother recollected how one time they'd been deer hunting, And Randy had opted not to wear gloves, even though it was five below zero. That's the kind of man he was. If anyone could find a way out of this mess, it was surely Randy and his fellow miners. But it didn't take long, however, for the terrible truth to become clear. Randy was helpless. As the minutes turned to hours and the hours turned to days, the water was receding. But by day three... Hypothermia and despair were setting in. In and of their own strength, there was nothing they could do. Resourcefulness and toughness weren't going to be enough to save them. All they could do was hope and wait. Within hours, Randy's story made front-page headlines and gripped the nation. A rescue effort began immediately. Rescue workers, fellow miners, families and friends worked and prayed day and night to save the lives of these brave men. It was slow, tiring, and difficult to work, but nothing could shake their determination. They began by running a pipe into the subterranean chamber, pumping in hot air, a move that kept Randy and his friends alive. When the miners banged on the pipe, it gave their rescuers the first affirmation that they were still alive and fueled their determination. And eventually, after 77 hours of huddling in the frigid darkness, surviving and thinking about his loved ones, Randy Fogel was finally raised to the surface in a yellow rescue cage with his eight fellow companions following shortly after. For all had survived with strong spirits and only minor injuries. And thanks to the devoted work of their rescuers, they had stared death in the face and yet come back to tell the story. You know, I never forget the first time I heard that story because as I heard it for the first time, I was instantly affected by the story. Firstly, I was affected because what a horrible situation that must have been in. 18 feet wide, 4 feet deep, which is about that. They are huddled over with the water nearly to the top. What a frightening reality that they found themselves in. 
freezing cold. It's like my worst nightmare that could possibly happen to you. But I was also affected by it because more acutely, I couldn't help but be reminded by this scene of the horrible and frightening reality mankind is in prior to this great salvation. See, the Bible makes it clear in God's word that we, are, we were all once alienated from God. We were all once, once hostile in mind and we were all doing evil deeds. The, the Bible paints a picture very clearly that for all of us outside of salvation, we were down the mine. We were uninterested in God, we were in darkness, we were far from Him, and we didn't care. The Bible goes on to make it clear we were by very nature children of wrath, and we were totally dead in our trespasses and sins. Listen, you and I, once upon a time, were down the mine, helpless to do anything about it, and even if we had come to the senses and decided we want to get out, you haven't got a hope. There's no way out. You and I, outside of Jesus, are completely and utterly stuck. Our situation outside of salvation could not have been more alarming. And it's your situation outside of the gospel. And more than that, it's the situation that the world finds itself in to this day. All mankind outside of Christ is stuck down the mine. And so how kind of the Lord that he's called us to go with a message to tell them something that can change their life, don't you think? He sent us. In Matthew 28, verses 19 through 20, we read, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. There's no doubt that for every one of us in the room as a Christian, We have been called to go and tell people about Jesus, to go and attend to people down the mine, to seek to go and make disciples of them and seek to tell them a story that will change their lives. But here's the thing. This tends to be the message on an annual basis, minimally, that you're like, I hope I'm on kids' ministry for that one. Because this is hard, is it not? This is real life. And we know what we're called to, but I think more often than not, we lack courage in it, we lack confidence in it, we lack hope in it, do we not? I know I do. We heard the message on generosity last week, and you think, oh, this is a sensitive one. And then you get the mission message, and you think, this is worse. They're going to tell me to tell people about Jesus. It's just so hard. And listen, it is hard. We live in a world that is being rallied and informed by people who are down the mine and bring with it a worldly worldview. And what that means is, for Christians, I think the world is an increasingly hostile place to live in. In some countries that Sovereign Grace gets to serve in, we have pastors and members of churches literally risking their lives to tell people about Jesus. In northern India and Pakistan and Somalia, there are people telling people about Jesus knowing that this might be the last message I ever get to give before they kill me. They are literally risking their lives. When I was in Ethiopia last year, I met two men, uh, Somalians actually, who are seeking to reach other Somalians in Ethiopia. They have an Al-Shabib target on their back. And they're not like superhumans. They're people just like you. One guy has a wife and two small kids. And they're still all going out to try and tell people about Jesus. They're literally risking their lives for the sake of the gospel. 
and other countries that we get to serve in as a family of churches, we have Christians risking imprisonment. Belarus, as I just shared to you about, as they continue to tell people about Jesus, they're not going to get killed for it, but they are risking being put in prison for a two-year period. Places like Nepal, where it's illegal to tell people about Jesus. What do they do all week? They tell people about Jesus. That's what they do. You know, we literally have a fund in Sovereign Grace, part of our Asia-Pacific Development Fund, that is given over just to giving money to Barnabas in Nepal to help people get out of prison on an annual basis. Because they keep getting in prison. Because they keep telling people about Jesus. Last year, they baptized 100 people. 100 people that they had told about Jesus, that responded to Jesus, that responded to the faith that they got to baptize. It's amazing. They are literally risking their lives in terms of imprisonment as they tell people about Jesus. And then in other countries, we're not in risk of being imprisoned. We're not in risk of losing our life. But in other countries, Western countries, for us here in Australia, what we are risking is being shunned and cancelled. As I've said before from this pulpit, I think our greatest danger in Australia is more seduction by the world than persecution from the world. But I wouldn't want to think persecution isn't there. It is there. And I do think it is getting stronger. And so as we tell people about Jesus, our greatest risk is probably not death or imprisonment, but it is being cancelled or shunned away from people. See, in the Western world, there is an overarching worldview that quite simply, we just need to be true to ourselves. It's the very air we breathe. Everybody just needs to be true to themselves. You need to do you. Whatever you are, you need to do it. You just need to be true to ourselves. And everybody talks about it all the time, whether it be Oprah or Beyonce or Ellen DeGeneres or Steph Curry or every student body in the Western world in universities. They're all talking about the same thing. You just need to do you. You need to be true to yourself. Here's the challenge. That doesn't work for Christians. Because as Christians are true to themselves, they grab open this word and they say, I'm living for Jesus and that means something. And Christians aren't allowed to do that because you doing you offends me. I'm offended by what you're saying. I'm upset by what you're saying. In fact, what you do hurts me. So I'm going to shun you and cancel you. We're not coming at it from an even playing field, are we? Not everybody is allowed to do them. Not everybody is allowed to be true to themselves. Christians increasingly are not truly allowed to live according to this word. Because if you share it, you're a bigot. If you share what you stand for, we'll have nothing to do with you. In fact, if you share what you stand for, you'll probably lose your job. Because you might offend people or upset people. We live in an increasingly broken down and hostile world. It's why we live in a world where the concept of celibacy seems to be at best outdated and at worst maybe even oppressive and ruining people. We live in a world where marriage is no longer just between a man and a woman. It can be a whole variety of different things. We live in a world where gender is something that you can now just choose for yourself, choose your own adventure, and has a variety of different options. Some say over a hundred different genders now exist. And don't you go saying that that's not true. We live in a world where teachers can wear a rainbow bracelet, have rainbow flags, can identify themselves with pronouns they want. But what a Christian teacher can't do, particularly in a state school, is wear a cross or pray with a student or share the gospel with a student seeking answers. No, we can't allow that. That's wrong. You may hurt them. You may offend them. You may upset them. 
My friends, we need to exegete God's word, but we need to exegete culture. And when we do that, we realize this is becoming a increasingly hostile place for Christians to be and to truly share the gospel with people. I think we all feel it. And because of that, we lack confidence, we lack courage, we maybe even lack hope that it's going to get us anywhere. Well, the Lord knows that. He knows our ways. He knows our frame. And so there's one thing that I believe he wants to burn into our hearts this morning, and it's this. His great power and providence in the very mission to which we've been called. See, here's the reality. If we were sent out on this mission by ourselves, we haven't got a hope. But we haven't been. His great power and providence steps with us every single part of the way. His great plan of redemption is unfolding on a world stage, and he's called us to be a part of it. See, make no mistake, my friends, we have been called to this great commission. It's not like an optional extra to Christianity. It is Christianity. We are called to go make disciples of all nations, to tell people about Jesus. But likewise, make no mistake, immediately prior to Jesus calling us to that great call, he says this, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. (laughs) Boom! Well, that changes everything. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. What does that mean? Here's what that means. Jesus has won. That's what that means. He has won the war. The cup of God's wrath has been drunk to the full. The devil in that moment has become a defeated foe. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. What that all means, my friends, is although we have been sent on this great commission, the battle itself has been already won. Jesus wins. This great plan of redemption that is unfolding around the world, guess who wins? Jesus wins. Because when he declared it is finished, it was finished, and all authority and power has now been given to him. And we get to play a part. His great power and providence is in the very mission to which being called. We are not alone. And when we see this and understand this, it changes everything. And so I have two points this morning. I want us to examine from this text and then one brief closing point of application. But I come to it really with one hope. I, I really do pray that as a congregation, our faith will be stirred this morning. That our courage will be stirred. That our confidence will be strengthened. That our hope will be informed. As we realize His great power and providence is in the very mission to which we've been called. Two points then, and here's the first. Number one, the power of God. The power of God. The Apostle Paul takes, takes particular reference here, in particular time, to help us see this power of God. It is actually in something. It is coming through something as a conduit. And that's the word of the cross. Look with me at verses 18 and 19. He says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning, I will thwart. You know, the ancient world, as you know, deployed many different polarities to describe humanity. You have Romans and barbarians, you have Jews and Gentiles, you have slaves and free. 
But right here, Paul gives us the most important polarity of all, namely those who are perishing and those who are being saved. And he makes it clear that to those who are perishing, to those who themselves are down the mine, the word of the cross, it's folly to them. It's crazy. It's moronic. It is foolishness 101. How could you possibly believe something so stupid? To people down the mine, it is foolish to the max. First up then, he tells us about the Greeks. And he says this in verse 22. He says, the Greeks seek wisdom. See, the Greeks viewed wisdom and philosophy as the highest of human attainments and therefore built their whole society around wisdom. There are at least four dozen distinct philosophical systems that competed for each other for influence and power and position. And many of them actually involved some form of worship. They were religious in nature, and all of them sought to explain human origin and morality and relationships and destiny, all in line with a plethora of different gods. And in turn, these philosophies and structures formed the very basis of their cultural worldview. To a Greek, listen, they loved human wisdom. They spent time saying wise things. Why? Because it gave you power. You worked up the tree, up the structure in their culture. The cleverer you are, the wiser you are. And so high-sounding discourses and ponderings of the intellectual were the stock and trade of the day. They were the sounds of the city. And as a culture, they prided themselves on their ponderings and on their wisdom. Then comes along the cross. Well, that doesn't sound very wise at all. You tell me he's a king? He's a messiah? Uh, he ends up dying on a cross. That ain't, that's stupid. That wasn't wise at all as far as they were concerned. What type of king would die on a cross? That isn't powerful. That's weakness. They seek wisdom. And so to them, the whole word of the cross, it's folly. It's crazy. And then there's the Jews. It tells us in verse 22 that the Jews demand signs. See, the Jews wanted God to meet all their requirements of tangible and irrefutable proof on which they could base their convictions. And so their working understanding was that when the Messiah comes, he will surely come with striking manifestations of power, striking manifestations of might and majesty, all pointing to the coming of the Messianic age. And yet Jesus does these signs and their miracles, and and they're good, they're impressive, but there's some really strange things about them. I mean, they don't seem to be that powerful. I mean, most of the time he's doing it with obscure people in a backwater somewhere. And he keeps doing it on the Sabbath as well, which is really confusing for the Jews. That's a really bad day to pick. And then when ultimately he ends up dying on a cross for them, there's no way we can believe in this. There's no way he can be a Messiah when he dies on a cross. It's simply not possible. See, in Deuteronomy 21 verse 23, we read, Cursed is a man who hangs on a tree. And so if that is the case, how can the promised all-powerful Messiah end his days Hanging on a tree. It's an oxymoron. It's utter foolishness. You can't have a suffering, crucified Messiah. Boom. This is crazy. The Greeks demand wisdom. The Jews demand signs. It's all utter foolishness to them. 
Likewise, for the Romans and Gentiles alike, Paul goes on to tell us, listen, for all those who are perishing, for all those who are down the mine, it's foolishness. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Oh my, as Christians, how true that is, is it not? For those who are being saved, the word of the cross is the sweetest and most life-defining and life-changing words of our entire lives, is it not? In Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, we read, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. And as Christians, oh, we love that, do we not? It's the start of the great rescue mission. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, Jesus Christ, on the greatest rescue mission ever told. He died in our place. He gave his life away as a ransom for many. In doing so, he made it possible for us to be forgiven and redeemed and adopted and assured that heaven is our home. When we were perishing, that very same word was absolute folly. It seemed madness. But now to people who are being saved, that very same word is a treasure and the delight of our hearts. How did things change? How did it change in your life? Well, here's how. It changed in your life because at some point in your life, someone took the risk and got over the pain line towards you and told you about Christ and Him crucified. At some point in your life, somebody has taken the risk and taken the time to tell you about Jesus, to tell you about the one who changed your life. And in God's amazing grace and mercy, like a bomb going off in your heart, he then opened, his, opened your eyes to its truth and effectively called you to himself. My friends, make no mistake, our salvation is a miracle of grace. You were dead in your transgressions and sins, but boom, in a moment, he opened your eyes. But the means through which he opened your eyes was what? It was somebody telling you the glories of the gospel. And my friends, we must understand this morning, the gospel itself really is a powerful and potent weapon. For those who are being saved, it is the power of God. The gospel is the power of God. And no one, I think, understands that better than the Apostle Paul, actually himself. See, prior to salvation, Paul was the church's most determined opponent. He hated, he hated Christ and he hated all Christians with a passion and a resolve. And so when we first encounter the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 7, we see him holding people's coats at Stephen's martyrdom in heart agreement with all that is taking place. You know what Paul was prior to salvation? He was a Christian terrorist. He was the Osama bin Laden of the day. He hated everything you stand for. All he'd want to do if he was here would be to kill you, literally. So when Stephen is being stoned, all he wants to do is, hey, I'll hold your coat so you can throw some stones. He loved it. And then shortly after that, he goes to the high priest and the Sanhedrin and says, listen, they're fleeing to Damascus. Let me go after them. I'll get them. I'll bring them all back. I'll bring them all back. They can be tried. They can be murdered. They can be martyred here for their faith. Let's go get them. Let me go. And they agree. Go get them. Round them up. Bring them back. But in Acts chapter 9, he encounters the risen Christ. And in a moment, boom, his life is transformed. 
In a moment, he realizes Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus is the Messiah we've been waiting for. And he gives his life to following Jesus as his Lord and Savior. The Apostle Paul is the most unlikely person on the planet to ever become a Christian, but he is no match for the power of God. When the gospel is shared with him, when he encounters the risen Christ, in a moment, he goes from gospel persecutor to gospel proclaimer. In a moment, he completely turns his life around and he gives his life away to following Jesus as his Lord and Savior. And so when he tells us in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. He gives us one of the most powerful and potent statements anywhere in the Bible. I mean, pay attention. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. He is equating the power of the risen Christ that he encountered on the road to Damascus with being in the gospel message. He's aware this gospel message can change people's lives in a moment. I'm not ashamed of it because it's the power of God to change people's lives. You will never nice somebody into the kingdom of God. Never. You'll never argue them into the kingdom of God. Never. But you can share a gospel message with them that in a moment, boom, can completely change their lives. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. One of the most powerful and potent statements anywhere in the Bible. And it's one of the most powerful and potent realities that we get to have as Christians, I think, still to this day. Because God changes people's lives to the glories of the shared gospel, does he not? You know, just before Christmas in October, I was in the Philippines. And I was speaking to our lead pastor there, Jeffrey Joe, who obviously is our work there, just about more the roots of their church. And because we were starting to do some ordinations for some of the pastors in the Mindanao Islands, which are more tribal islands and more Muslim background, I was asking how, how really they got involved with Jeff and how that occurred. And I heard the story of a young lady called Lily. In 1995, Lily was invited to a Bring a Friend Sunday. They do a Bring a Friend Sunday. And they do it quite regularly, actually. And they're like, just bring your friends. This is a Bring a Friend Sunday. And they make a fuss of all the guests. That's the way they can roll in the Philippines. And that's the way they do it. And so one couple brought Lily. And Jeff said he still remembers her, seeing her in the second or third row at the front. She came with her girlfriend at the time. She was a practicing lesbian. He said she walked in. She had short, spiky hair. and She didn't look that interested. But somebody had brought her to church. Whether she came for the food or not, no one really knows. But she came. And so Pastor Jeff was telling the gospel, was preaching the gospel. And he noticed that Lily had tears running down her eyes. So he went and spoke to her afterwards. And there and then she said, no one has ever told me what you told me this morning. How do I follow him? How do I take him as my Lord and Savior? In that moment, she gave her life to the Lord. The bomb went off. The gospel did what it can powerfully do. A few weeks in, she realizes, I can't be a Christian and still be living with my girlfriend. So she asks her to move out. She leaves her. And the challenge is, at that point, her girlfriend becomes aggressive. She becomes violent. So Lily is on the end of domestic violence. Well, Jeff and his church, a similar situation to us, they actually hide Lily in different people's homes. She's moving around the congregation just to keep her away from this lady. 
Eventually, this lady realizes, I can't find Lily. She's gone. And so she moves away. And Lily just settles into the church and gets discipled in the church. And then she says to Pastor Jeff and the team, Jeff, I, I love Jesus, but my family have never even heard of him in the Mindanao Islands. Would you send me back? Would you send me back to go and tell him? And he said, absolutely. We, you go with our blessings. So she goes home to the Mindanao Islands and she begins to share with her family, a direct family, about Jesus. And as she t- shares with them the gospel, one by one, they all start getting saved. Well, as they start getting saved, they're like, we've got to go tell our other relatives, which for those of you that are Filipino, means about 120 people each. I mean, there are big families. So she starts to go down even further south to the Mindanao Islands, down the, right down the bottom. And <clears throat> when they're there, they're getting to all the cousins and the right relatives. And again, one by one, they're all putting their faith in Jesus Christ. They're just sharing the gospel with people. And they're getting saved. And it was during that time that they're right down in the southern Mindanao Islands that a young 12-year-old boy from the Manobo tribe comes into the town. That's very unusual. The Manobo tribe are like what Elizabeth Elliot was trying to face in the Ecuadorian jungle. They are headhunters. They are going to kill you. But this 12-year-old boy comes into the town. He's disorientated. He's clearly not very well. And so Lily actually cares for him. And she cares for him with his body and soul. She nurses him back to health and she tells him about Jesus and he becomes a Christian. At which point this 12-year-old says, listen, I need to go back to my family and to my tribe, but I want you to come and tell them about Jesus. Well, that put the fear of God in her heart because she's like, they will kill me. They are going to kill me. I don't, I, you know, it, she, she didn't really know what to do. So she calls Pastor Jeff in, in uh, Manila and says, Jeff, they've invited me to come to the Manobo tribe. I would like you to come with me. <laughs> At which point Jeff says, all right, well, that's, that's what we'll do. So Jeff and two of his elders get on a plane and they all go. And so now they are walking into this tribe, this 12-year-old boy, Lily, and three guys into the tribe. They know they could get killed on the way in. Their only chance of not being killed is this little boy. And lo and behold, they get to the gate. They've got spears there. They've got guns. And they say, well, what are you doing? And the, the boy explains, they've actually been looking after me and they want to tell you about this man that's changed my life. So they welcome them into the tribe. There was actually an initiation ceremony that Jeff talks about. It's a great story. He talks about putting his hand into a pot and feeling hair and something and then eating it with monkey brain. That was all part of the initiation. And after the, that's where I would have gone, sorry guys, going to have to leave it. It's not good. <laughs> But there we go, they're munching on a bit of monkey brain. And then the, the boy says, well, tell them about Jesus. So he starts telling them about Jesus. And as he's telling them about Jesus, just sharing the gospel, he notices a tear running down the eye of the chief from the Manobo tribe. He'd never heard this story before. The chief goes on to become a Christian. And then he starts explaining to everybody else, this is the truth, this is what we need. And one by one, they start to become Christians. Listen, we now have, Sovereign Grace Churches now has 12 churches in Mindanao. Amen. Yeah. 12 churches in Mindanao. Because somebody like you had taken the time to invite Lily to a Bring a Friend Sunday. She had heard the gospel and then just started telling her friends and family about it. The gospel is powerful. So often we just think, oh, I don't think it's going to do anything. Really? Let me introduce you to Lily. It did a lot. (laughs) There is a lot of gospel work going on. Just through this lady who had had a life transformed by the gospel. Single lady, continued to be single all her life, just gave her life away to telling people about Jesus, changed so many situations. 
That doesn't mean that every time we share the gospel, it goes off immediately. I had a good friend in the UK um, who was actually, as a teenager, a bit, of a, a bit of a rebel, to be honest. He used to sleep and hang out in graveyards. Long story, but it's kind of the way we roll in Wales. Um, so he just did some strange things. But one night he got really cold, and him and his mates were out, and they were getting wet. And so they went for a bit of a walk, and there was a small Baptist church and that invited him in, and it looked warm. It looked warm, and the guy at the front said, oh, you should come in. You know, it's nice and warm in here, and we've got some food. All right, they got food. So in they go, and he goes with his mates, 17, 18 years old. They're sitting at the back eating this food. He tells the story about how the first song they did was Come By Ah. Bad start. But that's the way they rolled. It was just this very small chapel service. And then while they're eating this food, the pastor gets up, or the guy who's leading, and he tells them about Jesus. He just shares with them the gospel. He says he didn't even do it like that amazingly well, but he just told us about Jesus, about Christ and him crucified. And he said that he left that day going, yeah, thanks very much. The food was nice. I'll probably never come back. Nothing happened. Until some weeks later, He's driving along in his car and he realizes in a moment, Christ died for me. For me. He pulled his car over to the side of the road, got out of his car, sat in a lay-by, knelt to the floor and just said, Lord, I take you as my Lord and Savior. You died for me. You never know when the gospel is going to go off in people's hearts. Sometimes you get to see it immediately. Sometimes it may be weeks, months, even years later. You don't know. But what I do know is the gospel is a powerful and potent weapon. You will never nice somebody into the kingdom of God. You will never argue somebody into the kingdom of God. But you can tell them a story that in a moment, if God wills it, can change their lives. It's a staggering reality. We just need to tell them. We need to attach these sticky bombs to people's lives knowing they have the power to go off when I do not know. I cannot control that. But if they do go off in a moment, they take people from darkness to light, from deaf to hearing, to blindness to sight. You know, that alone, church, should encourage us to take risks, should it not? When you realize the gospel is still a powerful and potent weapon. I just like to box it up and put it on my shelf and never bring it out. No, when it is shared, it does damage in a great way for the Lord. That alone is encouraging. But there's more than that. The truth of the Bible is that it's as we lower down our nets and share people with the gospel, that it's then God by his grace and sovereignty that brings those fish in. It's him. He does the work. And that's where Paul goes next. This is my second point, the providence of God. Look with me at verses 26 through 31. But consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. 
Now, the reality of this providential and sovereign grace that is so evident on display in these seven verses really should make us, as a church, the most humble and joyful people, I think, on the planet. As for you, you were dead. You were down the mine, unable to do anything about it. And yet now you stand here rejoicing in the Lord. That is a miracle, a miracle of grace. J.O. Packer says it this way. He says, To know that from eternity my Maker, for seeing my sin, foreloved me and resolved to save me, though it would be at the cost of Calvary. To know that the Divine Son was appointed from eternity to be my Savior, and that in love He became man for me and died for me and now lives to intercede for me and will one day come in person to take me home. To know that the Lord, who loved me and gave Himself up for me, and who came and preached peace to me through his messengers, has by his Spirit raised me from spiritual death to life-giving union and communion with himself, and has promised to hold me fast and never let me go. Listen, this is knowledge that brings overwhelming gratitude and praise. My friends, does it not? You are the quietest congregation in the planet right now. Is this not good news? It's amazing news. You are more English than the English. It's amazing good news. You were down the mind. You were dead. It's a truth. It's a reality. Yet he pulled you out by his mercy and his grace. Listen, as Christians, we should be coming in on a Sunday morning, shaking our heads amazed that we get to be here at all. Lord, why me? Because I was down the mind, and I was hostile with you. I didn't care about you at all. Lord, why did you set this bomb off in my heart? Why me? It should cultivate humility in our hearts. Amazed that you would choose me. It should likewise, as Christians, promote great gratitude in our hearts. As we realize, Lord, thank you so much. I could not save myself. But you did save me by your mercy and grace. It is all of grace. But likewise, understanding providence and sovereign grace, if we are wise, should help us to be the most courageous and hope-filled people when it comes to the great commission to which we've been called. Why? Because consider your calling, brothers. You were down the mine. You were once alienated from God. You were hostile in mind. You were doing evil deeds. Once upon a time, you were by very nature a child of wrath, but you were, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. That was your story. Before there was even time, God chose you. Before the world was even on its axis, He, by His grace, chose you. At the right time, then, He sent forth His Son to die on the cross in your place. And at just the right time, he sent somebody to you that would get over the pain line and take a risk to tell you about Jesus. And as they did, whether it happened immediately or at a later date, that bomb went off in your heart. You saw it. You saw him for who he really is. And in his mercy and grace, he saved you by his grace. He opened your eyes and saved you. Listen, that should give us great hope and confidence as we tell people about Jesus. Why? Because this is still the way he works today. 
It's just we let down the nets and tell people about Jesus. I can't, I can't guarantee anybody's going to get saved. we just got to trust that he will bring the fish. That he will save them. He will open their eyes. If he doesn't, then our message is just foolishness. They're just going to think you're crazy. But if they do, they'll thank you for the rest of your life. Realizing you shared a message with me that changed my life. God opened my eyes. I saw him for who he is. Thank you. Thank you for telling me. So just finally, how should we respond? What do we do with this as a church? Listen, this is what we do with this. This is how we respond. We respond, I believe, by doing all we can to get over the risk line and tell others about Christ and Him crucified. It's what it says in verse 22 through 24. It says, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Listen, there are some that God will bring into our lives who, like Greeks, will seek wisdom. And will be eager then to want to keep talking to you about culture and worldview and philosophy. They'll talk your head off in the hope that it will gain some enlightenment, some understanding, that something will happen. Oh, I get it now. It all makes sense. I'm ready. That day ain't never going to come. Because that's what he's talking about earlier on in the passage where he's like, human wisdom doesn't do it. We can't just attain to it by human wisdom. Likewise, there will be some who will come to you like Jews and demand signs. They will put up obstacles and barriers and preconditions. And so, yeah, okay, I might be interested in following God, but he needs to do this for me first. If he does this, then I'll think about it. As if God's some type of genie in a lamp. Is somebody that we just rub on the side and he comes and helps us. Listen, Christ has done more than enough for us. He's given us the entirety of his word. He's not a genie in a lamp that just performs for us and then we decide whether we want to respond. We cannot stand with people that are demanding signs and say, well, I'll demand signs with you. No, we can't. But what we can do for both Jews and Greeks alike, what we can do is give both the wonderful story that changes our lives. And what we can do for both is tell them about Christ and Him crucified. And my friends, that is what we must do. Why? Because the gospel is the power of God and to salvation for all who believe. You can have your neighbors over a thousand times. If you don't tell them about Jesus, they are never going to become a Christian. Hospitality. It's a wonderful means of grace. It is not saving grace. We can befriend people. We can be really kind to people. That's wonderful. It's a great means. It's a great leeway to telling them. But it's only when we tell people. All the other stuff is pre-evangelism. Evangelism when we say, let me tell you about a king who changed my life. When we tell them about Christ and him crucified, that is the power. That's the message that can change people's lives. So let me ask you, just responding to what Austin asked us, I think, so well at last week's Envision Night. Who's your three for 23? Who are the three people that this year you're thinking, all right, minimally, I'm going to share the gospel with them this year. I'm going to tell them about Jesus. You know, when Austin came up with that idea um, and spoke to me about it, 
my imagination got to thinking. And I thought, you know what? If we as a church committed to that, if we as a church commit to, I'm going to tell at least three people the gospel this year. That would be over 500 people that are going to hear about Jesus this year. That's massive. Imagine if we said, no, we're going to go with six. I'm going to try and go for six. I'm going to try and share the gospel six times this year. That would be over 1,000 people that would be hearing the gospel. Just, just dream with me a bit. Imagine what God might do if we get committed as individuals and as a church to let down the nets with clarity. Imagine who we might bring into them. Imagine how many lilies that might be sitting in the room. Imagine how many lives may get saved and changed as a result. Who's your three? The 23. My friends, all around us, we see people like Randy Fogel who are down the mine. And yet we carry with us a message that can change their lives forever. We carry with us a message that is powerful by very nature. And when we share it, can do incredible things. And so I want to encourage us as a church, may we risk it all and let down our nets this year. And may we watch and see what the Lord may do. Is there risk involved? Oh yeah. They might shun you. They might even cancel you. But Christ is worth it. And they are worth it. Where would you be if no one took the risk to share the gospel with you? Well, praise God they did. May we be like them. May we let down our nets. And may we watch and see what the Lord may do. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you for this great commission that you have sent us on. Lord, there is a profound purpose that we all have on our lives as Christians, a profound purpose that you've given us all, and that's to go and make disciples. And yet, Lord, in the natural, it puts fear in all our hearts. We can lack courage in it. We can lack confidence in it. We can lack hope. Well, Lord, I do pray that the word of God this morning would have a lasting effect in our hearts and that we'd realize all over again your great power and providence is with us in this great commission. We're not alone. You are actively involved, unfolding this great drama on a cosmic stage. And you've called us to play our part. So Lord, would we risk? Would we risk this year? And would we watch and see all that you may do? In Jesus' name, amen.